The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 9, or you can look at it on your outlines. We're going to uh, just read a significant portion of this scripture, and then what we do every Sunday is we, uh, we talk about the scriptures, what they mean and how they apply to our lives. But we're going to begin in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, with one of the, the most, I think, dramatic accounts in the gospel of Mark. And it starts this way. It says, and when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus, Peter, John, uh, the, the three that went up with him on the mountain, they've come down from the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, Immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we would better understand the freedom and the the liberty from captivity that you offer to those that would turn to you. Lord, I pray that this morning you would stir in our hearts to have faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And I pray that that you would set free captives this morning in the power and the name of Jesus. Amen. I wonder how you would finish this sentence. The reason that Jesus came into this world was to save us from our sins. There's a lot of good answers you you could give to that. Reconcile us to God. Show us how to live. Demonstrate what it means to to love people. Teach us what is true. Um, All of these things are good answers. But I think if we were to ask the apostles, the, the disciples that were closest to Jesus, how they would answer this question, some of them would give you answers that might surprise you. John, for example, the great apostle, the one who, as we begin this passage, has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, 
one of his closest followers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in one of his letters in 1 John, he says it simply this way in 1 John 3, 8. He says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That might not be the answer that we expect. That might not be how you would fill in the blank, but this is a, a this jumps off the page to me as we consider John's response. What are the works of the devil? There's a, a lot of things that we see in Scripture. Certainly, the devil, Satan, our enemy, our adversary, he tempts people to sin. He doesn't make you sin. Uh, you don't get a, a, jet, a get out of jail free card. He doesn't make you sin, but he tempts us to sin. He entices us to sin. He deceives, even leading believers into error. He blinds the eyes of those that don't yet know the Lord so they cannot come to saving faith. He afflicts people mentally, physically. We have an adversary, an accuser that hates those that bear the image of God and he is against them. And Jesus came to destroy the works of this adversary. And as we've walked with Jesus over the last couple of months, as we've been like the disciples and we've had a front row seat to his ministry in the gospel of Mark over the last few months, we've seen that this is absolutely true. Wherever Jesus goes, as he enters town after town, village after village, he's confronted by people who have been devastated by evil, by the brokenness of this world, by, by lies, by disease and darkness, all the things that are so signature of our enemy, the devil. And yet as Jesus moves from town to town, as he encounters people in these frightening states, he's not afraid. No, he's not afraid at all. He's, he's ready. He's ready to enter into these conflicts because the darkness actually trembles in his presence. Jesus is bringing light. And when light enters into darkness, the darkness must flee. And he, as he ministers in village after village, is beating back the spiritual demonic darkness in individual lives. And a key part of what he does is as he goes into these places and he preaches repentance, he also offers healing and deliverance. He casts evil spirits away from people. Like it or not, this is a theme throughout the Gospels. This is a major theme in Scripture. I hope you don't like it, but there are malevolent spirits. There are spiritual forces at work in this world that are opposed to the work of God in individual lives. Do you know you have a spiritual enemy? I know sometimes it sounds too fantastic. It sounds, it sounds hard to believe, but what Scripture tells us convincingly is that you have a spiritual enemy, a liar, an accuser, and an adversary, and his servants Demonic spirits want nothing more than to bring horrible, ugly destruction on those who bear the image of God, including you. That's a sobering conclusion. I think for some of us, we would rather just turn to a different channel in our minds when we think about that. We'd rather just go to a more comfortable place because maybe this sounds too fantastic to us, or maybe it sounds a little bit too worrisome to us. And, and so I think what we have a tendency to do is we have this, this deep-seated bias, um, and we've talked about this in the past, in this Western context in which we think we're too civilized, we're too smart, we're too uh, disconnected from this kind of thing to even believe in it, or if it exists and we give some kind of intellectual assent to it, then it must only exist in other contexts. And, and certainly if you go to some other uh, places in the world, you can see some pretty dramatic examples of spiritual warfare. I've had some people share some stories with me even this week. But we in the Western world and the majority, we have this, this disconnected view of this. But in the majority world, the rest of the world, this is just a given that there are spiritual battles taking place every day all around us. And that same spiritual conflict is raging here in the West. Don't be deceived. 
It may be more subtle. It may, may have on different clothing, but there is a battle taking place, a real spiritual battle. And this morning, as we come to, to what I think is one of the most dramatic passages in the New Testament, Jesus is, he comes face to face with what I can only describe as an overt, horrible evil, a demonic spirit that is trying to kill a young child. And so as we go through our outline, we're going to look first at, at the demonized. As I, as I re- read this passage to you, and as, as we begin to go through it verse by verse, uh, can I confess something to you? These kinds of passages are difficult. These are, are, are passages that, that many preachers and commentators would rather just skip over, would rather uh, move through quickly because they are messy. This passage is a little messy, isn't it? It's intense. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot that, that would make you want to just avoid this altogether. And I think many of us would like to just avoid the controversy and avoid the confusion. And, and I, as a preacher, I sometimes have this temptation as well. I can remember a few months ago, just it was like news cycle after news cycle revealed some kind of cultural tipping point or breaking point in our society in which there was a call for, for the church to respond. It was like, what are pastors going to say about fill in the blank? This happens all the time. And we as a church will not preach the news. That's not what we're going to do. But, but there was this sense in which I, I just felt helpless. And I felt like, Lord, I don't have the answers to all these questions. I don't have the answers to all the difficult things that I see in Scripture. I certainly don't have the nuanced response to every new crisis in our world. And I was expressing my insecurity to the Lord. I, I woke up this m- one morning and I was laying in bed and I was lamenting to God in prayer. And I said, God, how am I supposed to do this? I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the experience, I don't have the nuance, I don't have the perfect answer for every question that comes up. And, and I did what all of us can do. I said, I need help. I need you. And it was as if the internal audible voice of God spoke to me in crystal clarity and said, Mark, just preach my word. Just preach my word. And by God's grace, that is what we as a church will always do. No matter what comes up, we will preach it. As we go chapter by chapter through Gospels, we will not skip over things. We will not avoid controversy in God's word. And in the face of any challenge, Lord help us, what we will do as a church is we will praise God, we will pray, and we will preach the word. Why? Because John 8, 31 to 32 says this. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's word sets us free free. And perhaps today, as we see an example of this in this passage, perhaps today will be a day in which some of you will experience freedom too. Freedom from from the chains of addiction, freedom from fear, freedom from doubt, freedom from unbelief. And I think whatever feelings of, of doubt or fear or awkwardness a passage like this can provoke, I think the point is really clear here. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's what he fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 61. And in this particular case, the individual care and compassion of God is poured out on a young boy and his father. So recall with me the context as we go through this again from the beginning. Jesus has just been up on the mountain, a tall mountain with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And on that mountaintop, before he's transfigured, what was he doing? It was weeks ago, I know, before Christmas. What was he doing? What does Jesus do on mountaintops? He was praying. He was praying and he was drawing near to his father, demonstrating this this intimate daily dependence that he had on his father. 
And there in that context as he's praying, Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of the the disciples. He takes on this drastically different form as he begins radiating the light and the glory of God. And they are astounded because they have seen God's glory and they have lived. This is what Jesus has just been doing. It's a life-changing experience for these individuals. But as they come off the mountain, it's not as if the other nine disciples are are just doing nothing, twiddling their thumbs. What are we going to do until Jesus gets back? No, this is interesting. This is what we ought to be doing. They are ministering. They're continuing to do the work. The nine are continuing to, to pray for healing, preach uh, repentance. They're, they're offering deliverance from these demonic forces to people. But what we come to find in this passage is that it's not going particularly well for them in this particular case. Something is wrong. And as Jesus and his three come off of the mountain and approach them, they see a crowd of people thronging around the nine, and he hears what sounds like a loud argument. Look again at Mark 9, verse 14. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So this is kind of the substitute teacher treatment going on here. Jesus has gone away. His nine are left behind. And now is the time for the scribes to begin picking on them asking their questions, challenging them, because this is an opportunity. It's, it's the, the, the boss is gone. Let's get after them. And so Jesus comes in a very timely intervention, and he approaches, and the crowd rushes over to him because they want answers. And he asks them, verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. You can sense this this frustration, this desperation here from this father. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, this is an intense passage. This is a boy who is suffering immensely. This is a father with a young son who is desperate. And if you're a parent, uh, I think you can kind of go here a little bit. I just wonder, what would you feel like in this situation? I have a young son, a young son who's probably a similar age to this child, or at least similar age to when this child began to experience this kind of oppression. And this father has watched helplessly for years as his young son has been tormented by spiritual forces that are seeking to destroy him. Now, what I will tell you is that this malady that he's experiencing, this is not a medical malady. This is a direct result of demonization. And Jesus is now coming to set him free. Why do I say demonization? Why do I say demonize? I just want you to remember from, maybe it was back in October, uh, where we talked about this idea that demon possession, as we often call it, is not actually biblical terminology. That's not actually the word that is used in scripture because, and, and it's not helpful to use because it connotes this kind of full personality takeover that we really don't see in scripture other than the garrison demoniac who has a legion of demons within him. What we see more often in scripture and and what is actually more accurate is that demons afflict, oppress, attack people and that comes in varying degrees. Sometimes it's demonic temptation. Sometimes it's it's mental oppression. Sometimes it's physical affliction like the woman who was hunched over for 18 years by a disabling spirit in Luke chapter 13. But already in the gospel of Mark, we've seen that there is a, a range of activity. There is a range of oppression that comes from the enemy, and and this ranges from subtle to very overt, as we see in this passage. Now, I I caution you. I don't want you to get overly, like, 
fascinated by this stuff and dive into the, the dark, deep end. Don't do that. It is not worthwhile, and it actually it opens us up for more deception from the enemy. And what we will not do is glorify the enemy by, by talking about him unnecessarily too much. Don't be curious. The point is that we have an enemy, and that enemy is one that we are to resist and stand firm against. An enemy whose Jesus whose works Jesus came to destroy. Jesus came to disrupt, to unravel, to destroy the works of the enemy. And you are in a battle. Now, it's not just a battle against Satan. It is a battle against our own flesh. (laughs) We're involved in this, right? It's a battle against the world. And it's a battle against Satan as he presents the world to this set of desires within us that wants to go our own way. And this is what the disciples face. In this passage, the disciples of Jesus, though, though they've often had success in the past, we'll look at that in a minute, they've been unable to do anything to help this father and this son. But Jesus is here. Jesus is here to deliver from evil. So now as we look at the deliverance that's about to take place, as we walk through this passage, what I want to do is draw out six principles for you, and you might take notes or fill in the blanks on these six principles of spiritual warfare, six principles of how, how to resist the enemy in our daily lives, Okay? and how to stand firm against the enemy, and, and how perhaps to prepare and pray and act when we come face-to-face with something that we recognize as a direct work of the enemy. The first thing, the first uh, encouragement to you is, number one, be discerning. Be discerning. 1 Corinthians 12.10 describes discernment of spirits as a spiritual gift. This is a manifestation of God's spirit in our lives where we are supernaturally able to understand when something is a dark spiritual force versus just something ordinary from living in a, in a fallen world. We need that spiritual gift of discernment to know the difference and how we ought to pray or act in each situation. And, and so there are some clues that can guide us just in, in the natural, but ultimately it will be the guiding of God's word and the guiding of his spirit that will lead us in our prayers and in our actions. Otherwise, what we, we do is we make the mistake of calling that which is medical, spiritual, or that which is spiritual, medical, and, and these kinds of things can lead us down the wrong path. What Jesus sees in this is a perfect ex- example of this. Jesus sees something in this child that convinces him that, that both the, the problem here and the remedy are spiritual in nature. And so we need discernment as we pray for others. Do you know you can ask the Lord for this? You can ask for wisdom, and he gives it in abundance. It says in verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, that's the the evil spirit within this child, saw him or upon this child, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water, to destroy him. Now, based on our modern medical knowledge, we might look at this passage and we might be able to give a diagnosis. This sounds an awful lot like epilepsy, doesn't it? For those that are not familiar with, with epilepsy, this is something that my, my uncle has suffered from for his entire life with varying levels of success through, through medical intervention and treatment. And it's, it's a condition that's close to home for my family. But basically what it is 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 life is normal most of the time, and then suddenly these, these seizures come upon you, and you, uh, if you know what a seizure is, you basically, uh, they come in varying degrees, but in this case, it's, you disconnect from any, any present um, notion of, of the moment. It's like you're not conscious, conscious, and you fall to the ground, and you begin to convulse, in this case, violent convulsions and foaming at the mouth, um, and this is something that 
is pretty common, actually. Epilepsy is a common illness. There's over 200,000 cases um, in the U.S. right now, and it's something that that I think would get a clear medical diagnosis. But for some reason, in this passage, Jesus sees something different. He sees that this is clearly spiritual in nature and not just physical. It's not just some electrical misfire in the brain. There's something else entirely going on here. Or why do I think that? Well, returning to the passage, what I think is clear is that there's something darker going on. And let me give you three reasons why I think that we can see that too, other than that Jesus affirms it. Number one, this affliction has caused this boy to be deaf and mute deaf and mute. That is not any ordinary epilepsy. This is something altogether different. Number two, this affliction has brought what appears to be horrifying acts of self-destruction. Whatever's going on in this child causes him to run toward fire and run toward water or, or move towards these things in a way that will nearly kill him. This is something beyond. And number three, as Jesus approaches, as he walks towards this boy, immediately an intense, violent seizure occurs in response to the holy presence of Jesus. It's not the kind of response that typically happens to Jesus unless there's something more going on here. Now, now don't hear what I'm not saying. It it would be uh, tragic for us to assume that because some medical ailments in the New Testament are demonically caused, that then that's the case all the time is not. What we see is that sometimes Jesus will drive out a mute and deaf spirit. Sometimes he will simply heal deafness and muteness, right? Two different responses to the same ailment based on what Jesus discerns spiritually. Only sometimes are these conditions spiritual in nature, and in this case, this affliction is definitely spiritual in origin. When we read about this, I feel disturbed by it. I feel like Can I be honest, as I read this as a father, it makes me angry to think that that Satan, our adversary, would attack children. Just, this is our enemy. This is is the way that he is. And a natural interpretive question as we read this is like, how did this happen? How did he get like this? What opened the door to this kind of activity? And we don't know, right? Right? It's kind of the, part of the frustrating part of this passage. We don't know, but what this does for me is it compels me to pray for my children. Do you pray for your children? Do you pray for their spiritual protection? Do you pray against the enemy for loved ones in your life? This passage doesn't tell us how this, this happens, but what I do know is that believers are not exempt from spiritual attack. You are not exempt from attack. For the believer, we're told in Ephesians 6 that we are to protect ourselves by putting on the armor of God. That is not decoration. It is for battle. We are told in Ephesians 4.27 to turn away from sin lest it give the enemy a foothold in our lives. A foothold in our lives. When we deliberately go on in our sin, we open the door to some, some agreement with the enemy. And that opens us, it's as if we're taking off the armor and we become more vulnerable to spiritual attacks. So, so we need to be vigilant in our confessions. We need to be vigilant in living in the light and community and being known by other believers around us in repenting from sin and from dead works and turning away from the enemy. We resist the enemy. And that is an active resistance. And as we resist him, Scripture says that he will flee from us. For this boy and this family, we don't know. We don't know what happened. We we don't have enough information. We don't know if there were occult practices or idolatry or sexual sin or any of that stuff. We don't know. And yet, as Jesus comes, what we do know is, is that this father is desperate. 
The present state of this child is desperate, and this father is falling apart as he is watching his boy suffer. But here's the good news. Jesus came for exactly this kind of situation. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and he is ready to bring freedom to the captives. And as they bring the boy to Jesus, the the spirit immediately reacts to the presence of Jesus. The boy falls down, and this chaotic scene starts to unfold in front of everyone. Things get really crazy. I don't know how you'd react to that kind of situation. I know I I would get nervous, anxious, perhaps fearful. And the second principle that I want to point out to you of spiritual warfare is number two, be unafraid. Be unafraid. We, we have uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 that, that reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 1 John 4.18 reminds us that perfect love casts out, interesting wording there, casts out fear. Be unafraid. Jesus and his disciples, they enter into these, these situations where they can see something is very obviously demonic in front of them. And, and there is not one phrase in scripture that expresses that, not, that Jesus nor his disciples were fearful or afraid, ever. This becomes commonplace to them because they know the power they have. They know the authority they have. They know who they belong to, and they've seen the difference that the presence of Jesus makes in these dark situations. So we needn't be fearful either. Be unafraid. Should the Lord give you an opportunity to minister to the oppressed, he will give you the strength you need. You don't need to be afraid. And in fact, what we see again and again in Scripture is is that these unclean spirits, they cower in the presence of Christ. That same presence that you bring with you through the power of his spirit and in his authority. Perfect love casts out fear. And here we see Jesus is calm. Jesus is unflustered. He just starts asking questions as this boy is in a violent seizure before him. Jesus is ready don't need to fear. And telling Jesus how long the boy has been like this, the father speaks up again. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus said to him, if you can. I actually don't know the tone there. Is it if you can or is it if you can't? I don't know. But he says this, all things are possible for one who believes, which leads me to think he's saying, if I can't know, if you can't, you need to believe. You need to trust me because all things are possible for one who believes. The the third principle that I I, I would uh, give to you is this. Be with other believers. As you enter into prayer, as you're ministering to people, this is not necessarily something that that jumps out from this particular passage, but, but it is a fact of spiritual warfare that we ought not to go it alone. When Jesus sends his disciples out to minister and to heal and to cast out spirits, how does he send them out? One by one? Two by two. Two by two. And there's a reason for that. We need encouragement. We need someone praying beside us. We need others with us because it it helps us to stay safe from false accusation, to stay uh, present and encouraged when things get difficult, to wage battle well, and it builds our faith. And Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, you need to know that on your own, as an individual, you do have the authority in Christ to rebuke the enemy, to stand firm against the enemy, to resist the enemy. But it is wise to minister with others by your side. When you pray for people for healing or for, for deliverance, I don't know if you do that very often, but if you do, if you, if you go out to evangelize, what we see as a pattern in Scripture is that you don't do that alone. 
You don't do that alone. So here, actually, this is, this interest, is interesting. Jesus calls on this father, actually, to participate in the healing through trusting and believing. Jesus can heal him without the father having any kind of uh, interest in this or any kind of involvement in this, should I say. But here in front of the crowd, Jesus calls his father to put his trust in God. And, and he says that the father's faith matters. Immediately, the father cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. This is a prayer I pray many times in my life. Many times in my life where, where I've had some measure of belief and just known that, that doubt and insecurity and all these things were, were beginning to come in. We have some trust, some faith, but if we're really honest, we're scared, we're weak, and in desperation, this father admits his weakness and he appeals to Jesus to change his heart, to help him believe more firmly. This is an honest prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Some of you uh, ought to, to utter that prayer even now under your breath. I believe, help my unbelief. Belief in what? Belief in what? What we're seeing here is, is it's not some kind of psychological certainty that you're going to get your way when you ask for something. No, rather it is belief that God is good and that he is able. And it's not about the quantity of our belief, it's about the quality of our belief and the object of our belief and our faith. God is good, and he is able. He has power. He can do this. And it's a certainty that compels us to bring him our needs and requests, knowing that he is able, and to pray boldly. The fourth principle is this. Be commanding toward the enemy. Some of you have never done this. You've never spoken with a, a voice of command toward the enemy. But in Mark 127, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to do this. And then it says this in verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. He names the type of spirit that it is. And he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, it's interesting he adds that, never enter him again. There is some maybe uh, vulnerability when, when he sends the spirit out that the spirit could try to return. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just send the spirit into the abyss, into the pit. I don't know uh, what that is all about, but he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Notice this, with a word of command, Jesus addresses this spirit directly, and in a voice of authority, he commands it to leave. Now, now, this is actually always how it works in the New Testament. We see at the end of this passage that Jesus encourages his disciples to pray for this kind of spirit to leave, but what does he actually do in the context? He commands it to leave, and it leaves. This is how it always works, always a word of command. And making a massive scene, the spirit not leaving quietly, unable to resist the authority of Christ, it departs. Now, can I tell you, I, 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 um, I believe, like I already said, that, that believers are not um, free from any kind of demonic attack. We are not. We are called to resist, we're called to put on our armor, and, and we are called to stand firm against the enemy. And what that will sometimes look like is that you will be attacked with oppressive thoughts. You'll be a, a, attacked through division in your life, through all kinds of things. And I'm not going to get into it. But, but in my own life, I can say that I regularly command 
the enemy and the authority of Jesus to depart from me and leave me alone. And you can do that too. Sometimes, uh, you know, even as I'm laying down to sleep, I'll have these, these, this flood of anxious thoughts flow into my mind. Uh, even, even demonic imagery at times will come into my mind and, and like a, a reel to harass me. And I say, essentially this, depart from me in the name of Jesus. I belong to him. You have no claim here. And I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Bring peace to my mind and my heart. I am yours. And peace comes over me instantly. Sometimes we, we have the same kind of thing. We have oppressive thoughts uh, or temptations or, or um, accusing voices or reminders come into our minds and you have the authority in Christ to command those things to leave in the name of Jesus and they will depart. We resist the enemy and he flees from us. Be commanding toward the enemy. Notice this. The boy lies quiet. The crowd begins to whisper, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Ears opened, speaking restored. Maybe this boy can, can hear and speak for the first time in, in many, many years, and peace comes over this boy's countenance as he falls into the arms of his weeping father. And this boy's life will never be the same because he has met Jesus, and because Christ has set him free. Now, in the remainder of the passage, we move into the, the debrief here. It says, when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? The fifth principle here is be confident in your authority in Christ. Be confident in your authority in Christ. These disciples, who just hours earlier were powerless to drive away this tormenting spirit, are able to do something pretty cool. They can take Jesus aside and ask him about this and debrief with him. And, and no doubt they're embarrassed. They've had a crowd yelling at them about their unsuccessful attempts. And here's what always has stood out to me about this line of questioning from them. They are actually surprised when the healing doesn't come. They are surprised when the deliverance doesn't happen. This is a pretty impressive faith here, isn't it? They're, they've been ministering alongside Jesus, and they've come to the place in their ministry with Jesus that they are now more surprised that this boy wasn't healed and delivered when they tried than if he was. Why? Because they've experienced the liberating power of God in their lives many times. Even when Jesus was not with them, when he sends them out two by two with authority to drive out unclean spirits, it says, uh, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they, the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They've proclaimed repentance to many. They've driven out demons from many and they've anointed the sick with oil and many are healed. I pray that would be true of our ministry as a church. That God would do that same work here. But this is the kind of confident faith these guys have, so much so that they're blown away when someone isn't healed. Do you know the authority that you have, believer, in Christ? Do you know the authority that you have in Christ? What we have as believers is, is the delegated authority of Jesus. And you might feel small, you might feel weak, you might feel powerless, but it's not about your power. It's not about your authority. It's about his authority. I am baffled every day when the school bus stops and the, the little girl gets off the school bus in her safety patrol ribbon and stands in the street and trucks stop. Why? 
they stop and they wait until she gives the signal and then they can go again. Why? Is it because of her authority? Maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. It's because of the delegated authority that she has from the state. People know who she represents and they will not violate that. That's the same kind of authority you have. You might feel like that these forces around you are too big, too powerful. You can't stand against them. Just picture yourself as a safety patrol little girl standing up to a truck. You have the delegated authority of God Almighty, Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you are given authority over the enemy. Live like it. Own it. Stand firm against the enemy in the authority that you have. And, and here, the disciples, they know this authority. They've seen it in their lives. But for some reason, in this situation, I, I don't know why, maybe, maybe they forgot <laughs> whose authority they were casting out demons uh, in the first place. But here they are, though they've been declaring the power and authority of Jesus, still it didn't go according to plan. And they've come face to face with something that, that kind of scares them, a force strong enough to equal that authority, at least from what they can tell. Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive it out? The sixth principle here is this. Be prepared. Be prepared for battle. Be prepared for this spiritual conflict. How do we be prepared? We know the scriptures. I fill my mind with scriptures about, about the blood of Jesus shed for me, about the forgiveness and cleansing of my sin. I fill my, my mind with songs like what we just sang. Death has no, the grave has no claim on me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I fill my mind with the truth of God's word through songs, through scriptures, and, and, and through preparing for these kinds of battles. And what we see in scripture is prayer and fasting make a difference. Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And many manuscripts also have and fasting. Jesus says two fascinating things here. He says first, this kind. Now we won't spend much time on this, but it reveals that there is some kind of hierarchy even within, just like in the angelic realm, within the realm of these unclean spirits, these demonic fallen angels. There's some kind of hierarchy of power. And here, this, this powerful adversary has come against this child in, in the way that Satan often does in this merciless, destructive attack. This kind isn't like the others. The second thing he says is that the reason they were unsuccessful is because this kind only comes out through prayer. Don't hear what he's not saying. Uh, what what we've just seen is that in the case of every demonic deliverance that we see in Scripture, and what we've just seen in this passage, is that this kind is actually driven out by a word of command from Jesus. But then he says there's something else that ought to be taking place. He says this kind comes out through prayer. You want to cast out this kind? You want to stand against uh, the strength of this enemy? You better be praying. Don't do this in your own strength. Don't do this in your own uh, confidence. We need him to supply the power. We need a fresh infilling of his, his spirit. We need him because he is the one that can offer freedom to those in captivity. Jesus has just been up on the mountain praying. He is ready for the battle. This is prayer of preparation. This is prayer of spiritual discipline. This is prayer of, of inviting the power of God to work in you. 
make no mistake, it is not the frequency or the length of our prayers that give us power over the enemy. It is the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And what prayer and fasting do is they quicken our awareness. They make us sensitive to the work of the Spirit so we know how we ought to respond in each situation. But the big point of the passage is this, as we, as we conclude. And don't forget this. 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to set people free. Jesus came to bring freedom, and you too can experience freedom. Right now, I'm going to invite the band up, and, and, and those that are part of our prayer team, if, if, if any elders are here or prayers are here, I'd invite you to go over there to the sidewall. And, and I just want to encourage anyone who needs prayer today to go and receive prayer. Perhaps today would be a day in which you can experience freedom. Freedom from, from chains of addiction, freedom from unbelief, And I know you don't want to go over there when we just talked about demons and deliverance. You don't want to walk over like everyone's going to see, oh, that person might have problems. (laughs) What if we just went over there and said, look, I believe, but I'm struggling with unbelief. Would you pray for me? What if we simply humbled ourselves and, and asked God for what he has in abundance? Let's pray right now. Oh, Heavenly Father, I look out at this this room of, of people that you love, you love deeply. And yet, Lord, secretly in, in the secret hearts here this morning, there are some that are really struggling with unbelief, struggling with, with resentment and unforgiveness, and in those ways agreeing with the enemy, Lord. There are some that are struggling with even, even this topic and the subject matter and, and, and whether it makes sense or not to them. And Lord, what I ask you to do is to bring freedom to hearts and minds and lives today. In Jesus' name. Lord, I, in the name of Jesus, rebuke the enemy. I say, Satan, you have no power here. You have no claim here. Lord, I declare that that you are here. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, Lord, I rebuke Satan and every demon power, their works and effects. Lord, I pray that you would set free the captives this morning. I pray that you would move in power to release us from the chains of bondage, Lord. And I pray that you would would bring in your grace and mercy and your cleansing flow. We declare that the blood of Jesus has been shed for each person here, and we thank you for that cleansing flow. Oh, Lord, we glorify you that where you are, there is light and liberty and freedom, and, and the darkness cannot stand. We say, enemy, leave in the name of Jesus. Leave. And will your spirit come and fill us that we might live for you. In Jesus' name.